Hello, everyone, and welcome to Two Goals. I am Katya. And I'm Maria Laura. And for today's episode, within the year of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, we are thrilled to announce our very first Japanese guest. Choko Tsuji is currently working as the head of partnership success at MyKujo and has several years of experience in broadcasting, content creation, digital media, and journalism. With a bachelor degree in sports science, a master's in sports journalism and communication, and an international master in management, law, and humanities of sport, Choko is also the founder of Sport Global a platform with the mission of empowering and fostering Japanese engagement with education and working experiences overseas. Shoko, welcome to Two Goals. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Shoko, usually we start this podcast asking our guests how their passion with football started and the connection with their countries and the sport. But as you're Japanese, if we talk about Japan, especially regarding women's football, there is one milestone and moment the world will always remember. The World Cup 2011 victory. The Nadeshiko were the first ever Asian team winning a world football tournament. And more than that, this moment in 2011 was the first reason of joy after the country being devastated by an earthquake and tsunami only four months prior to the tournament. How did you remember this moment? How was it for you as a Japanese woman seeing all the women bringing joy to your country after a tragic moment and with that bringing hope? Can you recall this moment and share with us what you felt at the time and how you feel now remembering it? Yes, absolutely. Um, 2011, as you mentioned, was a really tragic, impactful year for all of us. And I think I can speak on behalf of everyone in Japan that there was clearly a, a before and after. Our lives changed completely after March 11th. And the World Cup final, it took place when the images of the tsunami and earthquake were still very much fresh to us. And we were still dealing with the aftermath. I remember the, the final, it happened really early in the morning for us, around 4 a.m., but all my friends and family were awake to watch it. And we were clearly the, the underdogs and we weren't expecting to win, which is why the victory was just so emotional. And I really felt the, the power of sport that day to, to unite and uplift an entire nation. It gave us so much happiness and hope. And Having played football myself, I was also really happy to see the, the popularity hype that was generated around women's football after the World Cup, because um, all of a sudden the, the players were celebrities, we could see them on TV, um, the domestic women's league also became more popular and started attracting more sponsors and spectators. I played football myself and in university I had a lot of teammates that could have made it to the national team but back then playing football wasn't an appealing career path and they retired after university but I just wondered if they had been born maybe a year or two years later and they had witnessed the hype around the World Cup maybe they might have decided to, to continue playing. So. To sum up, the victory really changed the women's football landscape in a positive way, and it was a really significant moment in Japanese football history. There is something that you mentioned, which is curious, because that's something that I think often, which is that maybe if they have born like five years later, they, they will have had accomplished this. But at the end of the day, I think, and I will mention Colombia as an example, these footballers who didn't have the chance to 
to accomplish, I mean, I don't know, reaching a World Cup, for example. I mean, they are now working for others to, to do it. So I think that's really important to highlight. I mean, you mentioned you you were the underdogs. You are not an underdog right now. I mean, definitely. I mean, we all, we are all are aware that Japan is always favorite in a World Cup. We're always expecting something from your team. But I think that that's resilience, that's uh, sisterhood. I think that's really, those are sentiments who are really, really important to highlight that sometimes we don't have in men's football. I think that's something that it's an added value from our side of this sport. So thank you for sharing that. And moving into your, your degrees and your education, we would like to ask you, I mean, you, you accomplished a bachelor degrees in sports science in Tokyo, but then you moved to a completely different culture and country, which is Spain, to do a master in sports journalism and communication with the Escuela Universitaria Real Madrid. Why changing your language completely, uh, moving into another continent? Was this all because of sports and football communication? Was this your main reason or you just wanted to engage to different experiences? And of course, with one of those countries that we are all aware, it's all about football. Well, um, I was obsessed with football from an early age and my favorite local team, um, Yokohama F. Morenos, had quite a lot of Spanish and Argentinian uh, players and managers. So as a young girl, I thought if I can speak Spanish, then I'll be able to communicate with them. And that's how I started studying Spanish when I was, I think, 11. And I also loved watching La Liga. Um, back then I was a Real Madrid fan. And so I always had this admiration towards Spain. And already in junior high school, I knew that I wanted to work in football one day. Um, that's also when I realized how important the Spanish language was in the world of football. And I just needed to figure out how I wanted to be involved in football. I, I always enjoyed writing, especially creative writing. And my, my English teachers always encouraged me to consider journalism as a career path. But back then, I didn't really give it much thought. But then in my last year of university, um, I took a course in sport journalism. And there um, um, I had the opportunity to interview many top athletes and discover their stories and anecdotes. And it was really then that I thought maybe this is something I want to pursue further. And during all those years, I had continued studying Spanish as well. Even So I, I'd never lived in Spain, but I think I had a pretty good level by then. So I started researching uh, Spanish postgraduate courses online, and I just happened to find one master program specialized in sport journalism and communication offered by Real Madrid. And I, I applied immediately. It was really a no-brainer. And when you finished this degree, you did an internship at the RUAS, performing as a sports journalist. How did you feel back then about the status of women's sports coverage as we are talking about in 2012? Yeah, um, the coverage of women's sport back then was, was really minimal and, and it still is, unfortunately. Um, a really good indication of this is when you look at the front page of the newspaper. Um, rarely did I see female athletes being featured there unless they had won a gold medal, for example. And only like would this happen when there were no big news in men's football. 
Um, but I think in Spain, the lack of coverage is also an issue with non-football sports, because as you mentioned earlier, football is just so huge in Spain that aside from basketball and maybe motorsports, everything else is considered más deporte. So like everything else, basically, and it gets very little coverage. And even within football, most of the articles about, are about Real Madrid, Barcelona and Atlético de Madrid. And there's very little space for the smaller clubs and even less for women's football. So um, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done there. But one thing that Spain does really well is that they have a lot of fantastic female journalists and they're not just there reading a script or asking questions that were previously prepared for them. They have a voice, they have an opinion, and they're respected as journalists and specialists in the area. And this is something that you can't find in Japan, for example. And I really think it's important to have um, this female representation in sport media as well, because first of all, young girls will look up to them as role models and consider journalism as a career path. And secondly, we really need to communicate sports via the lens of both men and women to eliminate unconscious bias and also increase like diversity and innovation in the content that's being produced. Uh, regarding Spain, uh, about women's, in this case, football, that we've witnessed it, uh, at least last month, uh, some covers at um, the main newspapers over there, Marca, at least, the cover of the, the newspaper has been changed at least I think last week was Misma Pasión that covered the, 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 the cover and when, when the, the league started uh, I think and I've never seen something like that I think even in, in England I've never seen it a cover of a, a, a newspaper uh, announcing the, 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 the beginning of the league or the this case the derby Uh, or or, or there we are El Clasico. I don't remember now. I think it was El Clasico, um, the first El Clasico ever, and they did it. And these small steps will lead to a bigger thing. So we hope more more countries join in. There are cultural cultural barriers that we need to to break, but for sure these small steps they they uh, uh, mean a lot uh, for everybody. Yeah, definitely. I really liked the Misma Pasión uh, campaign. The beginning of it was quite sad because I think what sparked the campaign was that a female footballer had tweeted Misma Pasión and she received lots of horrible comments on social media. But then the, the male players of Real Madrid immediately supported her and started promoting the, the campaign and it went viral. So I think it was a really nice reflection of how There are no boundaries. Um, gender is irrelevant in sport, and we're all working towards the same passion in the end. And I reflected that at times we just need like a small gesture, for example. I think like in this case, I think it was Asensio who started with this helping the campaign. And for him, with a huge amount of uh, followers in social media, I mean, that's huge for him to step uh, in front and say, I mean, we need to try and change this perspective on, on women's sport because at the end of the day it's not only women's football we have I don't know like sexualized many many female sports athletes and it is huge for them to try and and back footballers I think that's something that we have heard that has been critical because they don't want to get involved into the discussion because that might jeopardize their careers or yeah. their I don't know commercial side but 
I think that was the main thing here is that they try and support because they do have audiences and they have a voice maybe a bit louder, sadly for now, than, than female athletes. So I think that's really, really huge thing in this case. And besides this really important matter that you, that you mentioned on female representation in Spain, in the areas of journalism, there is something I'm curious about. How was it writing in Spanish? I mean, getting this tone, I mean, how, how to connect with a different culture, how, how hard was this uh, back then? And at the end of the day, if you still feel that writing, for example, and portraying a news, is this very different between languages? I w I'm always curious about this. Yeah, um, it took me a while to get used to the, the tone of the Spanish culture and language. For example, in Japan, the post-match football articles are quite serious based on facts, like who scored in which minute and which team won. But in Spain, they assume that you've watched the match. So instead of just informing you about what happened and the score, they also describe it to you. And the journalist provides his or her interpretation of the match, the strategy, the context in a very creative way. So um, I had an amazing mentor at Diario As, the sub-editor called Juan Matrueba. And he always told me, stop being so serious, Shoko. You need to be more playful. And he encouraged me to use more metaphors and puns and refer to movies and music um, in the article to make it as playful and poetic as possible. And this was really difficult for me at the beginning because it was a style that I wasn't used to. And I also had to write the articles under really tight deadlines, but I eventually got the, the hang of it. And my internship coincided with the London Olympics. And in men's football, Japan was in the same group as Spain. So they let me write a preview and post-match review of the match, which Japan won, 1-0, by the way. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I still remember when I, when I first opened the newspaper and I saw my article and my photo in it. It was just one of those moments you, you never forget. I know that times have changed now and we rarely buy a newspaper. We read everything online now. But back then it was still quite common to buy a newspaper. And I'm forever grateful to Diario As for giving me, giving a non-native Spanish speaker, an intern like me, the opportunity to, to publish such an article. And you were lucky while in Spain because you had the opportunity to work at Nova Gica. I hope I, spell, I pronounce it well. As a sports media project manager, can you please tell us about your experience there and how was your experience broadcasting and creating content around La Liga and connected this with the Japanese audiences? Yes, um, I managed to find a job in Barcelona shortly after the internship at Diario As. And um, at Novajica, I was responsible for bringing La Liga to the Japanese audience. One of our main clients was the rights holding broadcaster of La Liga in Japan. So we acted as their agency on the ground and we helped them to broadcast matches, conduct interviews and produce original content. So as someone who had studied sport journalism, it was really the, the dream job. And I did everything from suggesting which players, managers to interview to the client, uh, negotiating with the clubs to confirm the interviews, doing research, preparing the questions, hiring the camera crew to actually conducting the interviews. And yeah, as much as I enjoyed uh, following the big clubs like Real Madrid and Barca, I also loved covering the, the small clubs. 
um, like Avar, Betis, Rayo Vallecano, and, and looking for stories there that would engage the Japanese audiences. And I think I must have interviewed over 100 players and managers during my time there. And, and today when I watch La Liga or the Champions League and I see some of the players on TV, it seems unbelievable that I actually got to sit down with them and have a, a 20, 30 minute chat. But I really only have positive memories and they were all extremely open, humble and respectful. And it was really the best introduction I could get to the sport industry. Fantastic. And sometimes these experiences, they change our our lives, uh, as, as we can say. And after this job experience, you decide to study again, uh, another master's degree. So in this case, it was the FIFA Masters, where you graduated with distinction. Why did you take this step? Was still there something that you felt it was missing in your career? Well, when I was in university in Japan, one of my professors actually recommended the FIFA Master to me. So since then, it was always on my agenda and I knew that I wanted to do it one day. I needed to get some professional experience first. And when I first started working in Barcelona, I set myself two goals. The first was to be involved in the broadcast of El Clásico, uh, the famous Real Madrid against Barça match. And then the second was to be involved in the production of football documentaries, because that was something I was really passionate about. Um, and after four years there, I had worked on, on eight Clásicos, and I'd also worked on multiple documentaries featuring players like Diego Costa, Ike Casillas, uh, Diego Forlan, and also Japanese players like Mike Havanar and Takahashi Inui. And I felt that I had kind of achieved the initial objectives that I had set for myself and that I needed a new challenge. Also, um, working in the TV industry, I could also feel how the world was gradually shifting from traditional broadcasting to, to online streaming. And I felt that I myself also needed to make that transition. And that's why I decided to, to go to the FIFA Master because I felt it would allow me to kind of take a step back, uh, reset my career, broaden my knowledge and network. And it was really one of the best decisions I, I ever made, um, just studying in three different countries with 29 other talented and ambitious individuals and yeah it was incredible and in a way the FIFA master experience is still ongoing for me because I'm still in touch with my colleagues and other alumni every day I'm sure it's the same with with you too as well with the, the, the FBA. Well this is kind of the heart of the project so yeah this is why we are doing it this is why Katia and I are stuck together in two goals. No, but kidding. We are really, I think that's really important. I think those networks that you build while you're studying, while you're working, I think those will, in a way, set a path for And at the same time, will open doors in many other unexpected landscapes. So, and you were, you were lucky to have a job after the, the master's. You started immediately working at Maikujo as a partner success manager for Asia. We know that amongst other achievements, you implemented the AFC live streaming project, particularly talking about the women's side where women's football league competition with, uh, I mean, they, they had this steady growth of the game in Asia. So can you please explain what did you do exactly there? What kind of roles did you have to perform in a daily basis? And what do you consider was your biggest achievement there? 
Yeah, um, well, first of all, for those of you in the audience that aren't familiar with Maikuju, uh, it was founded in 2014 by two Portuguese twin brothers to tackle a problem, uh, giving visibility to the other 90% of football matches around the world that don't get any exposure. And what they did was they created a platform and a broadcast app that enabled any club, league, federation in the world to easily stream their football matches from anywhere in the world. So my first role at Maikuju was based in Singapore. And as you mentioned, I was responsible for the AFC live streaming project where together with the Asian Football Confederation, we managed to implement live streaming in 37 out of 47 member associations so that they could give visibility to the competitions that weren't broadcasted on TV. And this was a really big achievement for us, especially considering the unique challenges in Asia, such as internet connectivity, the huge geographic distances, cultural differences, politics, etc. And as for women's football, um, actually the first partner that ever streamed on Maikuju was FC Zurich Frauen, a women's football team from Switzerland. So women's football was part of Maikuju's DNA from, from day one. And in Asia, we, we managed to indeed um, stream a lot of women's football competitions, but it was more of a natural evolution because many countries we worked with already had broadcast solutions in place for their top tier men's competitions, but not for their women's leagues. So we were able to help them bring women's football online. And today, I think we can say that we are the largest online women's football community in the world. And on, on a personal level, my biggest achievement was live streaming the Women's University League in Japan because um, I used to play in that league and it allowed me to, to follow my university team and also the, the Women's Football League in Japan because it allowed me to follow my former teammates who had continued playing football and living overseas. I think you've also experienced it, but it's not easy. It's not possible for you to always go to the stadium to watch your favorite team play. And I was really happy that our platform was enabling fans like me to continue following my favorite teams remotely. Amazing. And yeah, regarding to women's football, I have to say these words exactly. You're the best ally of women's football because we are still struggling with visibility. We are always saying we are in a big momentum, but we are still struggling with visibility. For example, in Europe, you only have access, free access and direct access through other platforms than Maikujo. Through, for example, in England, uh, they have an application. And in Switzerland, they started this year also through the website. If we are talking about the other countries, we don't have other access provided from the federations. So... We have our friend Maikuju to, <laughs> to go. I'm, 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 I'm um, kidding here in a way, but it's, it's the other way. It's when you think about uh, watching uh, women's football, you think about Maikuju. And as you said, not only about regarding women's football, other uh, competitions too. I'm Portuguese living in Switzerland. And when I want to watch my local team, that is a, a small, small team, I know where to find it, <laughs> where to find the stream. And I don't need to look up a lot in, on the internet and it's there. So it's exactly this platform that we need. 
shout out to the, the Portuguese brothers. <laughs> now we, we will talk after a new company that joined Maikujo. There is also um, there is also a Portuguese over there. So we are we are leading the way, I hope, in this world. But it's a fantastic application and um, in this case a company that we can rely on to give what the women's football need that is visibility. But in Maikujo, we talked about your first role, but in 2019, you moved to Amsterdam, where you are now, and you start a new chapter at the company. Same company, different position. You're now the head of partnership success, a role which you performed in the micro perspective, focused in Asia, and now you have the macro perspective with the global approach of the business. What lessons learned did you bring from your former role and what have you discovered in this new role? Yeah, well, during my time in Asia, I had a very direct relationship with the federations and the leagues. So I was traveling every two weeks to different countries. I organized a lot of workshops and I had the opportunity to meet many people working in football, like our friend Jill from Guam, um, who was also featured on this podcast. And so I got to understand really well the realities and challenges that they faced firsthand. A lot of federations, for example, have very limited resources, issues with internet connectivity, also logistical challenges with finding venues and confirming fixtures. And it was really important for me to, to get that feedback and experience so that I could understand the partners better and to understand what their priorities were and also what value they were getting from our platform. And then, um, yeah, I moved to, to Amsterdam and my current role is to think of a global strategy to onboard and support our, our partners around the world and help them to achieve their strategic objectives. And I think the good thing about being in the Amsterdam HQ, I can work really closely with the tech and product teams and with their support, we can think of ways to support our partners in a more scalable way by making developments and improvements in the product that we offer. And yeah, I've learned a lot by working in a sport tech environment. I feel that often in sport, we tend to be quite emotional rather than rational. But working with the tech team has really pushed me to be more data-driven and make decisions based on, on data rather than assumptions. I also really like the, the lean way in which a lot of the engineers work. Again, often in sport, especially with big federations, there's a tendency to go all out from the beginning. And, but those projects usually take time to implement. And sometimes it could be that the final product is not um, satisfactory. So what I've learned is just, it's important to just start small, make adjustments along the way, and then gradually work towards something big. I think this is also a problem in women's football because when we speak with women's competitions, they feel that the quality of their broadcast needs to be top-notch. They need to have multi-cameras and commentary. But we always tell them the first step is to just go out there and give visibility. It can be, even be with your mobile phone. It doesn't have to be perfect from the beginning. But um, I think there still needs to be time for people to change that mindset. We learned this the hard way. Right, Katya? <laughs> about, yeah, I, I about mean, building a, a podcast. <laughs> this is always what I'm I'm defending. I will try to not be yeah extensive because I talk a lot about this. It's and that's why I'm saying you just need to want to the things. I mean, when you have you as a person, you have a cell phone and you may you can 
make lives on, on your personal accounts why you you don't do it on on the women's football you're in the stadium and i mean I'm not only saying about the fans but in this case i think it's a responsibility of the team someone has a cell phone today and can stream live um, on, on the internet and if we have a platform that provides you that that is my cujo What are you waiting for? This is always what I am, I'm asking. What are you waiting for? You have, you have the tools. So you just want, you need to want to do something. It's the first step. It's to do something. After that, everything will roll on. It, I always use this expression. It's the snowball that we, will start rolling and the sponsors will come. The views will start. Then the sp uh, sponsorships. Maybe later you can have a huge broadcasting deal. You never know. It can happen. So it is up to everybody to start and uh, put the foot on, on, the, on the ground. Yeah, um, can I agree more? No, I often hear like the best day to start was yesterday. So it's really important to just get started. Um, you shouldn't like strive for perfection from the beginning. You can gradually iterate and improve. But the important thing is to get started. And something to bring from your last answer, Shoko, is that You were also mentioning the importance of technology right now. And um, if you check Choco's profile, everyone, you will see that she likes to describe in the importance of, I mean, her career connecting sports, technology and media. I think that's, I mean, at the end of the day, and you mentioned the, the federations, they, they tend to be traditional, of course, because they have been doing the same thing for many years. And it is hard for them to jump into digital transformation. And this is a reality. We are aware of that now that we are forced to work from our homes, for example. I mean, this is something that was mandatory because we, were, we weren't allowed to go outside and do the, the things that we used to do. And we need to stop fighting against that because at the end of the day, the, every business that will start or that is already going on, I mean, if they are not aware of this, of the importance of using technology and I don't know, data, for example, I mean, they, they keep saying that data is the, the oil of the economy in the future. I think they, they will realize that they will soon need to close their doors because they, they really need to, to keep up. I mean, with the competition and the competition is not the guy next door, is the guy next door from a guy next door in the other part of the world. So I think that's really important to highlight of why it is mandatory to learn from these things. And To go deeper in that, and I want your personal opinion on, I mean, MyCuju is now an 11 company. So what can you say about this fusion? What about, this is related to the future of football. Is this part of a digital transformation we have been witnessing in the football industry? Yes, um, indeed, MyCuju was acquired by 11 Sports at the end of last year. And this acquisition was a fundamental part of the 11 2.0 strategy. So MyCuju itself will soon transform into 11sports.com, which is a new global sports platform with a focus on niche premium and long tail sport, including football. Um, what this fusion means is being able to support live coverage of the world's biggest sporting events through to local sport for underserved communities. And by building a global destination for live and on-demand sports, um, we can make a platform for audiences everywhere to enjoy. So it could be, it could mean, for example, being able to watch the club you love in, in Portugal or Colombia, um, but also being able to follow the stream of your niece or nephew. 
Um, so yeah, as for digital transformation of football, um, we've been at the forefront of this. Uh, we've proved that there's unlocked potential in football's long tail. We've allowed content creators to, to attract new fans, new sponsors, and build relationships with other stakeholders, and importantly, monetize the previously unrealized value in their content. So 11sports.com will maintain that same ethos. Yeah, and I have to add here, I, I think it's my opinion, uh, um, an example that will happen with this fusion, at least was what I acquired with this, our knowledge. That is, when you announce this, and it's again, shout out to the Portuguese Preza brothers and to Luis Vicente, because it can be connected, I don't know. But when this was announced, two months after, maybe, uh, it was announced also that in Portugal, 11 sports will start broadcasting women's football tournaments, uh, the Champions League next year. Everything has to be connected. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it is a sign uh, that, yeah, that's why when I, in the previous um, intervention, I, I said, you start broadcasting your own product through MyCujo and maybe you get a broadcasting deal later on. Nowadays in Portugal, they can watch women's football on their televisions through 11 sports. So you can make a deal through that. You only need the first step. And this is a chain This is a pyramid that you need to climb. Uh, you never know if you, if you don't take the first step. So let's hope that everything turns out well. But now let's go to your own project. You're the founder of Sport Global, a company launched in July 2020. Sport Global is a one-stop platform that inspires, informs and empowers Japanese students and professionals to pursue an education or career in sport overseas. Can you explain to us in your own words, what made you launch this project and how are you creating value with it? Yes, um, definitely. It all started during the first lockdown last May when I started thinking of what I could do to contribute to the Japanese sport industry. I've worked in football overseas for almost 10 years now, but to be honest, when I look around I, I don't see that many Japanese people working in international sport organizations and I think there are multiple reasons first of all it's really difficult to get a work permit outside of Japan but also there are just very few resources and guidance av available for those that are interested in working or studying overseas and I experienced that myself as a student I had very few role models around me and Even when I looked online, all of the information was decentralized and I couldn't find a platform where I could find all that information. So that's when, uh, together with two Japanese friends working at the AFC, um, we came up with the idea of Sport Global, a platform where we inform, inspire and empower. So what we do is we provide information about different postgraduate programs around the world in sport, We also inform them about job opportunities overseas. And then we showcase uh, Japanese professionals already working in sport overseas so that people can read about their career path and how they made it overseas. And then lastly, we, we empower. So we provide support, resources, guidance to Japanese students and professionals who have 
migration to, to go overseas. So we really hope that through our platform, more and more Japanese people will consider going overseas as an option. And then as a result of that, that we'll see more of Japan's presence and representation in the international sports scene. At the end of the day, I think this pandemic, I mean, of course, this has been awful in many ways for many people, but it is good that, I mean, you you now have plenty of time to think, I think, I guess, now that you're home. And I mean, if you're lucky that you're home, but um, but it's good that, that you start thinking about how these overseas experiences change you. And as you mentioned before, we, I mean, Katia and I, we were lucky to have this as well. And there is... I mean, and I'm talking about Latin America, there aren't many people who are allowed to do this, but at the same time, maybe it's just because they they don't know they can do it. And they are afraid of speaking another language. They're afraid of messing up, I mean, what what they're trying to accomplish. But I think this is the, the main message we would like to, I mean, I'm, I'm already closing this, but no, we, we still have one last question, but I think this is, this is really important. Try and be tolerant, try and read more, hear more, I mean, if you want to engage with other people's culture, I mean, there is always someone who is aware of that and they want to exchange experiences as well. And this will definitely change the, the way you see things because you will now be aware that you're not alone, that you're also not the center of the world and that there are people with, with a lot of struggles, but also opportunities and common features with yourself. And I think that's something we, we can take from this interview right now. And unfortunately, Shoku, we are reaching the end of our interview, but there is a rather polemic topic that, that we would like to discuss with you since you're here. Everyone around the world, we read and heard about the resignation of the head of Tokyo 2020 Olympic Organizing Committee, Yoshiro Mori, after his derogatory comments on women in meetings. However, we would like to ask you as a Japanese, is this a typical behavior in Japan? And what are the main challenges of women's leadership in the Japanese sports industry? Yeah, thank you for, for the question. Um, as a Japanese woman working in the sport industry, the, the comment made by Yoshiro Mori was just another sad reminder of the reality facing Japanese women today. I really hate to admit it, but his comment didn't surprise me. This kind of comment is, is quite common in the Japanese workplace and we've become quite familiar, even numb to it in a way. But I think one good thing that came out of this was that his comment went viral overseas and it made the headlines in international media. And thanks to that, that put pressure on Japan to really start a much needed discussion about this topic. And since then, I've seen many articles and webinars and events in Japan about the role of women in the sport industry. So just the fact that we've started having this debate, I think, is a really important first step. There's obviously still a lot of work we need to do. I mean, in the latest uh, Global Gender Gap Index report, uh, Japan ranked 120th out of 156 countries, which is really, um, yeah, it's really sad to see. But there are many things that need to be done. I think organizations need to address the unconscious bias in their organizations and make sure women are better represented. Uh, the media also have an important role to play. I think they should be showcasing more female role models, just as you both are doing. And we also, like as women, we also need to step up. There is, I think, data showing that 
even with the same job description, um, women, they usually need to tick at least, you know, eight or nine of the boxes in order to feel confident enough to apply, where with men, it's, it's not the case. And even if they don't tick 50% of the boxes, they'll still give it a shot. So I think we need to step up. We also need to be more supportive of each other and, and just apply for more leadership positions. So I really hope that um, in Japan, we can keep this debate and this momentum going and actually change these discussions into actionable initiatives. I, I read many articles on this. I think it's the 30%. They, I mean, mainly men, they only need to accomplish the 30% of the, of the requirements for a job position. I mean, I think what, what, what you're saying about Japan leadership, I mean, this is happening everywhere. And the good part is that is since we are starting to gain positions, this is the moment where everyone else behind, they, they start to felt okay, I can reach that position. I mean, if, if I can see it, I can be it. And I'm still in Katia's <laughs> sentence. She's always mentioning this in, in a couple of episodes before, but I think this is important, which is let's make the first step. And of course we need the, the contribution from others. And in this case, male representatives as well, they need to help this and build this, this possibility. But yeah, I think this is the best way to, to close because I mean, we're always talking about Okay, we now have a coverage of female footballers, but what about those who are making the decisions behind? What about referees? What about uh, people in charge of logistics? What about those who are um, making the decisions with seven other guys? How, how about the duration of the league? Like in the case of Colombia, three months, six, six months, seven months, we're, we don't know. But maybe so, someone is just one female representative working with others and, and it's hard it's, for them, it's hard to, to accomplish what they want. And I mean, Shoko, thank you for opening the doors of your life, your experiences overseas and every lesson you have had the chance to learn. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share my story. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I, I think we could have continued for another few hours and I really look forward to the future episodes of this podcast as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And remember everyone following us with the account at Two Goals Podcast on Twitter, YouTube and Instagram. Thank you for standing with us and have a lovely week.